Grab your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 3. We're in the middle of a series on Genesis. And I'll pose another problem today from Genesis chapter 3. At the end, we'll take some questions and pose some thoughts regarding this particular story. Last week, we talked about the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, free will and innocence. And we talked about how there are just simply some things in this world that you were never designed to know. There are some things in this world, like injustice and pain and betrayal, all those really negative, horrible things that exist in this world that you were never designed to know. You were never created to know those things. And so that's why God says, don't eat from that tree, because you were not designed to know those things. And we talked a little bit about thinking of Genesis more in layers. That at the, instead of thinking of Genesis as sequence, things that come one after the other, we thought we're, we're trying to challenge ourselves to think more in layers. That there is underneath this entire creation, the entire reality, something that is very, very good. And that is who you and I and this entire creation are at the very base of it. There's intentional craftsmanship. There's innocence and ignorance. But there's also free will and love. And today we want to talk about two specific things There's also cunningness and desires. There's things that cause us to want to eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and bad. And there's also redemption, atonement, and covering as a result of that. So we've been talking about how Genesis is a description of a worldview. So um, Genesis chapter 3, it's taken us nine weeks to get to chapter 3, so here we go. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized as if they didn't know this before, that they were naked. And depending upon what part of the country you come from, you can say naked or naked. (laughs) So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. We'll end our reading there. Now, as I mentioned, some problems. Let me point out just a few things that kind of add additional layers. Number one, in Genesis chapter 2.15, prior to this, man, Adam, humanity is placed in the garden to do two specific things, to serve it and to guard it, protect it. And if you take a look at those two words, to serve and to guard, you'll start to see those patterns come up actually all throughout the rest of the scriptures. I've noticed that in Ephesians um, and in some of the other pastoral letters uh, that we have in the New Testament, there are two main groups of leadership in the church. You have bishops and you have deacons, and those are the primary leadership roles. Well, a deacon comes from the Greek word to serve, and a bishop comes from the Greek word to guard or to protect. So all the way back in the very beginning in this Genesis story, we have two commissions, to serve, which is the word to work, and then we have the word 
to guard and to protect. And this is our commission. And all throughout then the rest of the story, we have these two things pop up in even leadership positions, even within the church. Now, again, this isn't just man. This is also woman. And this is a, these are pictures, actually, when Danielle and I were in Israel, we did this little walk from uh, Nazareth to Capernaum in the Galilee. And we stopped uh, off at this place called Yerok Az, which means the green goat. And uh, they, the, we were the very first visitors. They were opening up their home and their place to be a little bit of a tourist place where they get to see kind of real-life agriculture and stuff. So they pulled out their first fruits for us. And... While we were there, just a phenomenal experience, a little traumatic for me. I don't, you can't maybe tell, this goat is actually giving birth right now. Um, and then, it, this is a hard picture. This is the goat that was just birthed, and I cut out all the rest of the pictures that you don't want to see in between those two. Um, but it was an amazing experience to be there, and this goat is actually giving birth. And they were telling us, you know, you shouldn't watch because, you know, the goat might get a little nervous and they won't actually do the kind of thing. So I was like, okay, so even goats are a little self-conscious about people watching them giving birth. Okay, you go out into the waiting room kind of a deal. So we did. And what was fascinating is as this goat was giving birth, you can see the man here. I forget his name. Oh, I forget. I really apologize about that. Tending to the goat. And you could tell. The full commission of Genesis chapter 2 to care and to guard and to protect and to serve was happening in this image. You and I were created to guard and to protect. And so he was tending to the baby goat. And amazingly, of course, you know, just after a few uh, minutes, the goat was up and walking around and, and just an amazing thing. So that was our commission. This is what we are supposed to do. This is what our partnership with God looks like, to guard, to protect, and to serve. However, this tree, this stinking tree in the middle of the garden, has three specific things, if you notice from Genesis chapter 3. Three specific things. It was good for eating. It was a delight to the eyes. And it looked, the Hebrew word is nechmad, which means nice. It was pleasing or pleasurable for wisdom. Three things listed here. Good for food, delight to the eyes, and nice for wisdom. Now, this in and of itself is another sermon, another teaching. If you go through the rest of the ways in which we sum up the temptations and the challenges that each and every one of us face, it is summed up in 1 John chapter 2 as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So again, what's happening here in Genesis may be, once again, a descriptor, a summation, another layer of this world. That the challenges that you and I face, perhaps the stumbling blocks that you and I face, are summed up in in essentially three things. There are things in this world that tap into the lust of the flesh. There are things in this world that tap into the lust of the eyes. It looks really, really good to us. And then there's things in this world that tap into the pride of life. And if you look at the challenges and the the difficulties that we all face that end up in things like injustice and and all those other negative bad things that happen, you most likely could probably sum it up in these three things. And again, this is a whole other sermon in and of itself, but there's antidotes to that. This is why we have ethics, and this is why we have commandments and good deeds, things like purity and integrity and humility. Because as you strive for those things, you're fighting against those temptations that exist there in the garden. Now, when we get to Genesis chapter 3, 
Not only is there a tree of the knowledge of good and bad, there's this stinking snake, which Daniel likes to call the sneaky snake. And again, part of the challenge and the problem is like, why did God put the snake there? Like what, like that creation had to be in the garden. I mean, couldn't you just leave it at the tree of life and you know, you wouldn't have these problems. So there's this problem here of the serpent. And I'd like to highlight just a couple things that would hopefully spark some questions and some insights and maybe ways in which we think about ourselves. Why the snake? Well, in ancient mythologies, the snake was deemed as a deity. And the reason for it is because the snake, they noticed, recreated itself through the molting process. Now, again, we know scientifically what that is, but from a mythological standpoint, the snake was this weird creature. It moves without legs, and then it actually is reborn every season and leaves a dead thing to the side and becomes yet another living thing. And because of this natural behavior of the serpent and the snake. The snake became mythologically in the ancient mind this kind of idea or ideal uh, that had meanings imbued with deity or specialness or some sort of freakiness. And some of, the, uh, some of the writings, like, what the heck is this creature? It must not be from this world because of this uh, behavior. And so the snake has that position. So I think part of the reason why the snake is there in the Genesis story is because the ancient people had a very visceral feeling towards the serpent already. And it just naturally makes sense that if there's going to be a, an animal in the Genesis story that's going to be cunning and deceiving and crafty, then it's going to be this thing. Now, Genesis 3 says this. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now, that word crafty is the Hebrew word arom. Now, if you keep reading the passage when we get to chapter 7, excuse me, verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Again, part of the challenge of reading the English is that there's a lot of things that are hidden. If you take a look at the original Hebrew, these words, crafty and naked, are the exact same word, the word arom. Wait a second. Wait a second. The serpent was the most naked of all the creatures, of all the living creatures. And then when Adam and Eve ate, their eyes were opened and they realized that they were also naked. There's something really radical going on here. We often think of the snake, again, as crafty or cunning. And then when we get to the Adam and Eve exposure, we only think of the physicalness of being naked. But underneath all of it, the Hebrew, it's the exact same word. They're both naked or they're both cunning and crafty. So what's going on here? There's different ways that you can translate this. Depending upon your translation, you can say crafty. Some like to call this word prudent. Uh, some would like to translate this word clever or cunning. Now, I know what you think. As soon as you hear the word crafty, you think felt and buttons and needles and, oh, let's, let's make some flowers. Oh, let's get some materials. Oh, let's do something fun with this. This is not what I mean when I say crafty. But I, I would say, I would say, given my own personality, if the snake was this crafty, that is evil enough for me. So <clears throat> I'm, I'm totally good with that. No, it's not crafty in that sense. It's crafty in the sense of cunning. There's something there's something deep within this serpent, this snake, that is able to manipulate 
that is able to take information and, and turn it around, is able to see through loopholes, is able to do certain things with ideas that are not necessarily fully uh, honest, but, it, but is able to ma- manipulate it, be crafty, be a little deceiving, be a little clever, be a little cunning around it. So the snake is that. But in verse 7, if that's what the snake is, if that's what the serpent is, then how does that then also indicate that you and I, or the people, the humans in this story, are also just as crafty, just as cunning, just as manipulative, just as capable of seeing through loopholes and taking information and twisting it and turning it all around, just as able to take a word from God as they did in this story and to say, but, 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 but wait a second, is that what that really means? And to then twist and turn. Now, what's fascinating about this word is that it means this, but it does also mean naked. And some traditional interpretations might say it this way. What does it mean to be naked? It means to be completely and fully exposed, right? Now, this isn't just physical nakedness, but this means I can be fully and completely exposed to somebody. I am hiding nothing from you. I have a little axiom in my brain that transparency is for everybody. Excuse me. Honesty is for everybody. Transparency is for family and nakedness is for marriage. You should be transparent with people. You should truly be a real honest and have integrity for people. But when it comes to family, be honest, get real. But when it comes to marriage, as those of you who are married know, that's when everything is laid bare. And you know that that person knows everything about you. So to be naked means to have everything fully exposed. But what does cunning mean? Cunning means the absolute opposite of that. It means to hide things. It means to, I'm not going to show you this part of me. I'm not going to reveal this aspect. I'm going to actually shelter that. And I'm only going to show you this. And so what's neat about this word of Rome and Arumim that describes both the serpent and Adam and Eve is that they are both fully exposed, but they're also hiding at the same time. There's this wonderful brilliant, beautiful twist. And when they eat from the tree, they, they realize, their eyes are open, they realize that they have this, this dualism, this capacity in themselves to be fully exposed. But when they are fully exposed, there's actually deceit and cunning and craftiness and manipulation in their heart. Um, this came to a realization to me Sorry to admit this. This is going to be ruining my reputation, and it's a little bit embarrassing to share, but, you know, like I said, transparency and honesty with people. I have had a run-in with the police when I was in my previous days, and it has to do with eggs. So I was a latchkey kid, 
Latchkey kid means the parents are working and I've got the key around my, you know, for those of you who know, I have the key and so I, I take myself home. After school, during elementary school, I would go over to the neighbor's house, which was the local babysitting center for um, the neighborhood. And it was a wonderful place. And I was, I happened to be one of the older kids in this, I don't know, there must have been like 30 kids that went to this home for after school care kind of a deal. And because I was the oldest, I was a good, I was best friends with the babysitter's son. And when I say best friends, I mean, there were no other friends. So he was my only friend. Therefore, he was my best friend. Now, I don't know any better about life, and I'm just trying to learn and try to figure things out. And he has this brilliant idea. He says, you know what? There's this, there's this house that has this farm full of chickens. And you know what we're going to do because we are fully, because we're mischievous in that particular way? We're going to go steal some eggs. Now, I realize that I've been told in my life that stealing is wrong. Do we all agree? I mean, I've been told this. I've been brought up to think in this particular way. Do I think about that at that particular time? No. He's my best friend. Cool. Steal some eggs. So we get out to the, and we got out to the fence. And I remember distinctly, we, go, we went through barbed wire. We duck under and we're in the chicken. Chickens are flying everywhere. I'm grabbing it. And I'm like, no, no. This is a bad idea. You have to be careful with eggs. I mean, couldn't we grab the chicken? You could just, no. So anyway. We grab the eggs, and I start running out. And the lady who owns the ranch, who owns, own the, owns the farm, comes running out and starts yelling at us and begins to make all of these threats. Like, I have a shotgun. I'm, like, I'm going to call the police on you and all kind of a deal. And in that moment, I don't know why, my friend said, run, you know, because that's what you do, you the fight or, fight or flight kind of a deal. And I think this was one of the only moments in my life where I was so scared I couldn't do anything. Because I was at that particular, by that time, I was completely innocent of any, any wrongdoing in my life. I'd never done anything wrong. So I, I'm running out, and I almost get to the barbed wire fence. And she's yelling, and my friends are running off with eggs in their hands. And I've got eggs in my hands. <laughs> and I just froze. And I realized at that moment... I had been told what was right. I knew what was appropriate. I knew what kind of actions and behaviors gave life. I knew that. But you know what was also inside of me? A desire to do something really, really wrong. And to do something really mischievous. And to do something really cunning. And to do something really manipulative. And in that particular moment... You know, as I was was preparing for this message, this story just came to mind because it was at that moment where the two all of a sudden converged into one. I didn't know. I didn't know that that was in me. I didn't realize that I had the capability of being that mischievous, that cunning, that able to do really bad things that could be harmful and dangerous. But in that moment, the two came together. And at the very beginning of the story, when my friend says, hey, we're going to go do this thing. I didn't even think anybody, I'm headed in that direction. Why not? Let's just go there. Why? Because I didn't realize. I had no clue that I had that in me until that moment. Now, I'm sure I had other moments, and there's plenty of other moments in life, where you, you start to realize, you have this awakening that there is something very dark, cunning, mischievous inside of me. Now, I know what's right, but there's also within me the ability to do some really interesting damage. Is it true, then, 
that what Genesis 3 is talking about, when they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, they are opened all of a sudden to realize, not that they were naked, not that they were exposed, but that there was something within them that was deeply cunning, crafty, manipulative. There was something within them. They realized, I have this amazing capacity to do harm, to do bad in this world. Maybe that's what their eyes were opened to seeing. I'll I'll bet you you guys have this uh, experience. You know that it's good to be patient. This is a beautiful picture of how to exemplify patience on the road. But I guarantee you, as soon as those green lines turn red and people start cutting you off, is there something dark and mysterious that begins to well up in your soul and pretty soon you start making gestures and you say things that come out of you and it's like, that's why I don't put Christian bumper stickers on my car anymore because I don't want to be... Because you realize that there's something within you in certain places, in certain times, and in certain circumstances that that just seems to well up within you. Inside of us is both this capacity to heed God's word, but also to completely be cunning and mischievous and to dismiss it. We all know, we all know that it's good to forgive. We hear it all the time, to forgive and to forget. We understand that the word about forgiveness, about moving forward, about healing is a wonderful, beautiful thing to do. But I will tell you that if someone does you wrong, there is something within you that wills up that says, I will get my revenge and that person is going to pay. Is there something cunning and deep and dark within all of us. So I, I'm going to suggest that when their eyes are open, when their eyes are open, they realize that there's something that was within the serpent that is also within them. Now, in verse 9, God asks this question, he comes to you and says, where are you? Now, this classic question about, you know, what does God know has, you know, traumatized or challenged us especially for those of us who grew up reading the Bible and and kind of a deal. What does God know? Well, God already knew where they were kind of a deal. But that's, this is not a question of location. Again, we're trying to rethink this pattern of Genesis. This is not a question of location. This is a question of attitude, position, and posture. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you can tell they're not there? And then you ask them, um, hello, Um, where are you? And they will admit to you, and maybe you would admit, oh yeah, my brain's just not here. I'm at work still. Or I'm still fighting with that person that I was fighting with. Your brain is, where are you? That's the question that is being asked. Where are you? Why are you not fully present now with me? And then he says, well, because I was ashamed. My eyes were opened and I realized there's something really dark. There's something very cunning within me. And here's the rub. The serpent is crafty. The serpent is mischievous. The serpent is able to manipulate. And the serpent is an animal. But we're supposed to be above the animals. We're supposed to live higher than them. We're supposed to live as 
people who bear the image and likeness of God. And so when we act on that impulse of cunning and deceit and mischievousness, one rabbi talks about that's when we're acting just like animals. And we're supposed to be acting more like humans. People who are in deep connected relationship and community with God, when we hear God's word and it says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. Oh, I want to heed that. I want to listen to that. That helps me to rise above that thing that is deep within me. And then there's, their eyes were opened and then they start to play this game, the shame and the blame and the game. They feel this thing that they've never felt before. They begin to blame each other. My favorite word, this woman that you gave me, God, kind of a deal. And then they tried to game God. Well, they try to hide and they try to manipulate kind of deal. In other words, the very thing that their eyes were open to, they played right into. The shaming, the blaming, the gaming. Which is what we do, by the way. This says, I didn't say it was your fault. I just told you I was going to blame you. So, they realize that they're naked. And they realize that something deep within them is causing them to act more like animals rather than as images of God. And the whole question, the whole question for us in this is, what is your most naked desire? What is your most naked desire? In other words, what is it deep down inside in your soul that you wish to exemplify to live out of in this world? What is it that you want to be fully exposed to? Do you want to be fully exposed to the cunning, the manipulation, the craftiness, the ability to dig deep and reach down into that animalistic human, like the impulses of how you behave? Or do you want to be fully open and saying, okay, God, speak to me, teach me, give me your word. And as I heed your word and as I heed teachings, as I understand more and more of how you've given us this world. I can rise above and behave better than the other thing that is within me. I can become more and more like your image and your likeness in this world. Now, again, I've posed, I think, a problem. Because all of us, including myself, are still going to act and behave from our deepest animalistic, cunning, mischievous natures. And that's why I ask simply the question. What is your most naked desire? What is the thing where if you were to expose everything in your life, what would be the thing, the direction, the, the person, the thing that you would want to heed to? What part of you would you want to submit to? And I think Genesis 3 is that dark time where they heeded and they realized, I'm heeding to something very cunning and mischievous in, in my life. And I question God's word. And I question truth. And I question what I, what I knew. I question what was right. And I just listened to whatever I felt, the impulses. And so I, I hope and I, I pray that as we ask this question of ourselves, we're challenged to heed what God originally said. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. 
eat from the tree of life. And then the rest of the scriptures begin to delineate those commandments, those words, those life-giving words. And as we heed them, as we listen, as we learn, as we grow in that, then we rise above our animalistic, serpent-like craftiness um, and become more and more like his image. Okay. Any questions, thoughts, reflections? So you say don't eat from, I mean, that we should seek to eat from the tree of life. It kind of begs the question, then why did God remove the tree of life? So the question is, seek to eat from the tree of life. It begs the question, why were they then kicked out of the garden so they couldn't eat from the tree of life and live forever? The main interpretation that I've heard from that is it's an act of grace and it's an act of kindness. In other words, they now feel this shame, this blame, this guilt. They're, they're feeling this, which means that they're tempted by both the tree of the knowledge of good and bad and the tree of life. And if they were to eat from the tree of life and live forever, they live forever with that shame and blame. One interpretation of that. I would say also that the tree of life shows up again. We talked about it in Exodus. We talked about Revelation. We talked about with Jesus that the tree of life shows up over and over and over again. So the, it is, again, the precursor of eating from uh, God's life that is being disseminated to the people, to Israel, um, throughout the rest of the historical narrative anyway. Is it possible to get to the point where we, as a race of humans, don't have this part of ourselves? Is it possible to get to a point and place as a human race, where we don't have a part of this part of ourselves? I can't answer that, but my inclination is no. My inclination, again, as we talked about with Genesis being layers, is that what Genesis is doing is describing reality. And this is the struggle, and this is the fight. And to recognize and to study this and to kind of have our eyes open and to understand hopefully helps us to fight and to learn and to grow. That's part of what teaching is. Um, that's part of what study is, is to learn and to grow. Um, a mentor of ours... I asked him once, because he was talking about the seductions of culture, like all the things that culture seduces you into. And I asked him, are you afraid you're going to lose that fight um, and just give in? And he says, no, I'm not afraid that I'm going to lose that fight. He said, I'm afraid that I'm going to lose the willingness to fight. And I thought that was really insightful, that this is what it means to be human, is to constantly struggle and strive, according with the Jacob story. This is what it means to be human, is to constantly strive and to struggle with those two things within us. So, Tony. Well, the, uh, the question is, if and when Christ returns, how will that affect, and I think I lost the last part, how will that affect? The equation, oh, the equation. How will it affect the equation? Um, well, that's the beauty of Revelation 21 and 22. This is describing earth, our reality. Revelation 21 and 22 says a whole brand new heavens and a brand new earth is coming. Um, so I think the equation, in many ways, according to the way in which the, the scriptures move, is saying that which we are experiencing and struggling with now will soon be done away with. And we are looking forward to that time when there's a new heavens and a new earth. And not only is it just a replacement, but it works and functions completely differently. For example, there's a light that casts no shadows. And some people like to say, well, in this new heavens and new earth, an entirely different set of physics even works and exists. What is a light that doesn't cast any shadows? And so there's, there's all sorts of different ways that you can think about that. It's ultimately, fundamentally, I would say a mystery because we don't know what that new heavens and new earth is going to be like. What we do know is that 
that writing is looking forward to something that completely, radically transforms, replaces, however you want to put it, what we experience now. So I would say that the equation essentially doesn't exist anymore in that new heavens and new earth. That might be one way of putting it. Ellie. And, and so I really thought about it before, but when you were speaking of, of uh, <clears throat> and you were given the choice between life you know, you, uh, not. Um, and so it, from the very outset, God gave his creation That's correct. Yeah. To obey Yes. Yes. Um, by giving them the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and, uh, good and bad, God gave Adam and Eve a choice. It's free will. And we talked about that last week, that that's one of the existences of that tree, is love requires free will. That a demanded love is no love at all. And that if God made us love him, that wouldn't be love. And so in many ways... That's the challenge, I think, of going through Genesis in the way that we're doing it with so spread out is we, we do have to kind of remember all of the different layers all at the same time. Because, again, this story, especially Genesis 1 all the way through 11, is one compact piece of literature that we kind of all have to take into consideration. And all of that mixes together and interplays with each other. And so hopefully we can, uh, we can do that to the best of our ability. We've spread it out over weeks because that's kind of how we... We have crafted this, but um, hopefully we can keep in our minds that this is all working together. Because when we get to the, to the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, that's a whole other layer on top of this. Because they were also, also crafty and cunning and thinking, well, we can build this thing to the heavens kind of a deal. So um, let me close in prayer. Thank you guys so much. And we can, of course, continue uh, discussing and having questions. Uh, Lord, thank you for uh, this time and this opportunity that we have to gather together. We bless you tremendously for Spark. What an amazing church this has become and we have become uh, doing and expressing these values of love and rescue um, in this place, in this time, as well as all, all across the world. Uh, may we continually lean in to what it is that you're doing, God. May these teachings challenge us. Uh, may we grow. May we learn and discover more about who we are. And ultimately, God, may you be honored and glorified in all things. We bless you for this day. Be with us as we depart this place. And may we continually exemplify your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. In your name, amen.